This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. This week, we take a trip to Mars with a very special guest. We talk terraforming, solar panels, Martians, and most importantly, are the Rovers music fans? I'm Lucy Smith. Let's do it. Dr. Carl, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good and I'm doing especially gooder because I'm very lucky to have Dr. Adrian Brown and your official title, Dr. Adrian, is? So I'm the Deputy Program Scientist at the Mars 2020 mission, uh, the Perseverance mission, uh, and I live and work uh, in uh, the Baltimore and uh, in Washington, D.C. area. And you're in charge and in helping run a team of 900 scientists who are sucking back on analysing the data from this six-wheeled nuclear-powered rover that is running across Mars, taking samples, drilling holes and leaving samples behind. Behind it is sort of like dropping out little poos as it goes along. <laughs> and we haven't even designed the system yet that will bring them back in the year 2035. We're working on it now. Yeah, that's correct. We've just had this, uh, we're, we're coming up to a very important part of the mission where we're landing uh, out our, uh, or launching out our uh, samples that we're going to be um, forming into our first cache. So if something happens to the rover after um, this point in the mission, then we can always go back and go back to these particular rocks and pick them up as a uh, um, a consolation prize. But a uh, um, uh, very important because if there, something happens to the rover, then um, we, and, and uh, it has all the samples that it's collected inside the rover currently, uh, but we've got to deploy them onto the surface and that's going to happen in uh, November and December. So, Adrian, it, I'm looking at your bio right now and it feels like you've lived a lot of different lives. Like you've got, you know, a, a degree in electrical engineering, you worked for the Navy, qualified single-engine pilot. How did you get to the US and to NASA. Right. So I uh, had several very lucky breaks um, in my life and I was um, very lucky to um, uh, study with uh, the um, Australian Centre for Astrobiology here, which is actually at University of New South Wales now. Uh, and then after that, I was able to do a uh, – NASA has a postdoc system and I was a postdoc over at NASA in California and, and for two years working there. Uh, and and then I was able to transfer into my next position when I moved to, to DC in 2016 uh, and uh, just got lucky. Um, that was four years before the landing, but, but we were in the middle of choosing our landing site at that time. So that was our, um, that was our priority. And now we've got to the, to the next phase of, of this getting the samples back from Mars because the, the rover Mars 2020 it, we consider it to be the first stage of the Mars sample return mission. So you are an Australian in the US, so you're working on this Perseverance project, but you gave it a real Australianism. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> the fact that you Pers- gave the that you gave it a nickname in the, in the very Australian way in that we like to shorten everything and give it a nickname. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, Australians always like to shorten things like Frio and uh, and uh, Brownie and stuff like that. So yeah, I have uh, Percy just seemed to be natural sort of title after Perseverance uh, was chosen as the the name 
it just naturally slipped into Percy. And there's other members of the Australia, uh, who are Australians who also uh, refer to it as Percy as well. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's I love that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very easy to type out as well. Exactly, exactly. We're just making it easier. Dr. Carl, should we get into some questions? To the audience. Let's do it. Okay, so we've got Kalia in Melbourne here. Kalia, what's your question? Hey guys, I was wondering if there was any cool theories or predictions out there on what elements other life forms might use. So instead of oxygen and water like we do on Earth, is there any other elements that we think um, other life forms might use out in space? Um, yes. Yeah, so the beautiful thing about carbon, at the temperatures that we exist on, in, in our Goldilocks zone around the sun, where water can be a liquid, not solid, not steam, the beautiful thing about carbon is that it has four potential bonds or links so it can link up with other elements in so many ways hydrogen you got one you know carbon you got four but if you go down a periodic table and you look what's immediately in the same column as carbon you've got silicon and it too can have four bonds but at a higher temperature so secretly I think that there could be, and you're probably going to tell me, Dr. Adrian, though I've been reading too much science fiction, <laughs> I think that there is a planet somewhere at a higher temperature where the basis of life is silicon, not carbon, and the amount of proof we have for this is absolutely zero. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're um, – I'm going to take on your bet there, Carl. So I would bet that there's probably not going to be a silicon life form. We see – we do, we, for example, we're looking at exoplanets uh, that are, um, are nearby our solar system, um, and they'd probably be the best place to look for these type of silicon life forms. But then, how how would you differentiate yourself from a rock, which is all silicon as well? So I think the silicon life form would find it very difficult to make the organic chemistry that you mentioned. But we have a kind of silicon life form on Earth already called computers. Right, but they're very reliant for the moment on their carbon-based uh, progenitors. Well, uh, they're slaves. I they're welcome slaves. our silicon-based overlords when they come and <laughs> shall worship them appropriately. <laughs> mm-hmm. Carly, does that kind of help? Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you so much. Um, looks like I've opened a bit of can of worms there. So, <laughs> no, that's great. Lots of brainstorming to do. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carly. Uh, we got Rob in Melbourne here. Rob, you got a question about a recent NASA development. Talk to us. I have. Hi. Yeah. Um, about the recent DART mission, I was wondering. So where a satellite was crashed into a, an asteroid. I was just wondering what were the results of that mission? And given that all asteroids are different, made of different materials, different shapes, etc., how has that mission uh, helped our understanding of protecting the Earth against a possible catastrophic asteroid collision? That's a great Great question, Rob. Yeah, the DART mission was actually run by the Planetary Sciences Division that I work for. And um, my boss was uh, Laurie Glaze, is the boss of the Planetary Science at uh, NASA headquarters. And you would have seen her on uh, cheering on the DART mission and the impact uh, that that happened. So uh, we've had our, the first images that we've looked at of uh, the impact of the impact, if you will. So how much change mm-hmm. has been. Um, in, uh, impelled into the into the asteroid, and what it is, it's actually not an asteroid that we hit, but it's an asteroid around an asteroid, and we've changed the orbit of it a little bit, and um, over time, that that 
a little bit would be eventually enough um, energy to make sure that if it was previously on an Earth intercepting orbit, uh, we could uh, hit it, say, 10 years beforehand and put it off a little bit so that it, it just misses Earth 10 years hence. But then yeah, we've right. been lucky because on the 12th of September this year, we discovered a rock about 800 metres in diameter. It's going to have its point of closest approach in about a week or so wow. on the 1st of November. And it's going to miss us by six times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. And the only reason it's going to miss us, instead of slamming to planet Earth, is plain, dumb, good luck. Mm-hmm. And if it had, we had looked at, say, discovered on the 12th of September, we would have known by the 14th of September that it was going to land on, insert the name of your continent, and it would have destroyed most of the life on that continent. And all we could do is evacuate all of... Australia, South America, North America, Asia, Europe, pick your continent. And that's why we need this DART mission, so that we can do something about these rocks, although this one we only had a month's warning, which is not enough. We need years of warning to be able to yeah. give it a nudge so that eventually it misses us. Yeah, and I'll just, uh, just to get back to your question on whether, the, um, whether this is just uh, how unique the asteroid is that we hit, this is why we need more of these dart type missions because we need to hit multiple numbers to try and know how intact these things are. If you look at the uh, images that we saw of the of the impact, they uh, essentially it looks very much like an undisturbed rock that's just being lumped together rather than a, something that um, was hit s- several times. So it's something that that we're puzzling over how representative is this asteroid of the the asteroid group. And is there anything stopping us from having more of these types of missions or being Uh, able to hone in on this? Only money. Uh, So NASA is happy to do it for the money and now we know how to do it and we'll we'll send out uh, the money and it was uh, mostly run out of uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory uh, in uh, Johns Hopkins uh, who did this uh, mission for us. We've got Mark from Byron Bay. Dr. Mark, what's your question? Hey, doctors. Um, I was just on TikTok last night scrolling and I heard about white holes um, being the opposite to black holes and they expel matter. I was just wondering if you knew what that was. Yeah, so back in 1935, uh, Albert Einstein, who was a brilliant ideas person, brilliant ideas, pretty good as a mathematician but not brilliant, teamed up with some brilliant mathematicians called Rosen and um, Poldovsky and wrote some papers which everybody calls ER for Einstein-Rosen and EPR, Einstein-Poldovsky-Rosen. They looked at these things that we call black holes nowadays, but they didn't have that name back then. They were just looking at these things that had infinite density, a lot of mass, five times the mass of the sun, five million times the mass of the sun, but in a zero volume. And they just played with the mathematics and they said in their conclusion that these things, these what we call black holes, were not singular. What does singular mean? If I've got a pen and I let go of it, it just drops. It's not attached to me. It is singular. But my fingers are not singular. They're married to the palm of my hand, my wrist and so forth. And they were saying that black holes are not singular. They're kind of linked. And then they use the phrase Einstein-Rosen bridge, which we kind of think of as a wormhole joining one black hole to another. 
summary. We are very confident that black holes exist. We have a lot of proof. These wormholes, we got nothing. No proof. Okay. So I heard NASA found a white hole recently. Is that true? No. Dr. Adrian? No. Well, at least it hasn't come across my uh, desk uh, for my uh, inspection (laughs) as yet. But, um, yeah, that that sort of thing would be very uh, interesting to find. Uh, Potentially you might want to look for it with the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, but, but yeah, I haven't heard of that point. Yeah, so the white hole is where the wormhole squirts stuff out of. Black hole, wormhole, white hole stuff squirting out. Zero proof as of, uh, as of now. We've got Michael here from the Blue Mountains. Dr. Michael, what do you want to know? Another black hole question. Um, I understand that at the centre of every galaxy there's a black hole and our galaxy will eventually run into the Andromeda galaxy so I'm just wondering what happens when black holes collide. Well, um, we observed the first one happening on the 15th of September in the year 2015. And the event itself had happened one and a half billion light years away, one and a half billion years ago, when two black holes with masses of about 30 times the mass of the sun collided and made a ma- another black hole which had the same size, which is zero, but almost the same mass minus three solar masses. Right. And so they collide to make a single heavier black hole and those three solar masses got turned into pure energy over a period of a tenth of a second. And in that tenth of a second, they put out 50 times more power than every star in every galaxy in the entire universe. So that's what happens when black holes collide. And I that, see. And there's something else going on. On that same day, the 15th of September, 2015, Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister, got booted out by Malcolm Turnbull that same day. And the obvious question, the obvious question, if you're a real scientist, is let's go to the peer-reviewed literature. And when you look at the peer-reviewed literature, the first three authors of the paper about the black hole collision were Abbott, Abbott, and Abbott. Really? Just putting it out there, just putting it out there. Is it a coincidence? I'm not saying anything, but remember this. 24 cans in a slab of beer, 24 hours in a day, you work it out. <laughs> no, I think we're entering the realms of the supernatural. <laughs> Adrian, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, is that one Abbott or is it an Abbott Abbott? There's well. three Abbots in a row. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Paul here from Melbourne. Paul, you got a question for Adrian. What do you want to know? Hey, doctors. Uh, just wondering um, how instant or is the internet up there to actually receive a data from Mars? Right, so that's... How yeah, instant do you receive, yeah? That's a great question. So, yeah, we have, uh, we have three dishes here on Earth that make up the Deep Space Network, which is operated for NASA by JPL. Uh, and they uh, get all of the data back from our Mars rovers and my Mars rover, uh, and all of those... Isn't that cool, Lucy? He just said, my Mars rover. Oh, yeah, mm. I, I don't actually have a six power, six-wheel nuclear-powered rover. Do you have one, Lucy? No, I don't. Oh, okay, Get, keep going. Just yeah. sort of humble brag away <laughs> there. It's my yeah. rover. I'm no, no biggie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it. But the, the, essentially, the depending on how close Mars and Earth are, it'll take between 8 and 16 minutes to get that information physically from Mars to Earth. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, essentially, we do that every night. 
So we we collect all of the images from the previous day taken by the rover and upload them to Earth through what we call the Deep Space Network. Wow. And how fast? Oh, like, is it a, a megabit per second or is it 10 bits a second or...? Yeah, so that's... So it depends on what... Uh, 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 we have several satellites around Mars that we use to transmit the information. The most uh, the recent uh, European orbiter can get us back t- uh, two gigs per night. Uh, and, two gigabytes uh, of data right. over an eight-hour window. Yes, yes. Two gigs? That's yes. not even half of a video, man. Right. Yeah. Yes, we have to be very careful that we're not spending, spending so, all of that for, uh, recklessly. So it goes yeah. from the surface... Up to a satellite, you've got a bunch of relay satellites yeah. orbiting Mars? Yes, we have, yeah, we have three different satellites that we can choose to use. And then they all, trend, well, one of them is chosen to transmit the data back. Uh, and it also depends, uh, this is a very, uh, it's a very interesting question all the time. What time uh, which rover is underneath which uh, satellite at the right time? Because we've only got three satellites, that happens very irregularly. So sometimes wow. we don't get back any data at all. But all you can get is wait for it half of a DVD, which is four gigabytes. You can get half a gig half a DVD per eight hours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> we want more, Dylan in Bendigo, staying on Mars. What's your question? Uh, thanks for having me. I was just wondering why it's imperative that we find water on Mars and what actually happens where we do. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. Essentially, what the, the Mars 2020 uh, project was chosen, the landing site was chosen because we have a feature that we call a delta. And that delta feature is a bit like the Mississippi Delta here in, well, not here, but in the US. And that, that delta, to form a delta, you have to have liquid water be present when that was forming. Now, we know that there was no, we can know, we've looked for uh, forever to find any traces of liquid water now. We know there's no liquid water on the surface of Mars now. It's not, it's not stable anymore. But now we know that it was present in the past because of this delta feature. And so that's what drove us to this location to try and, uh, try and constrain and put limits on when Mars had liquid water and when it lost that water. And so we've gone uh, to this delta feature and already now we've collected samples from the bottom and the top and we'll use those to constrain the dates oh, and the timings of the liquid water being present. So l- let me get this straight. You're how confident, like 80% confident that there was water on 100%, Mars? 100%. Now, say it again. So you're 100% confident that there was water on Mars a couple of billion years ago? There was liquid water on Mars, yes. Wow. We already, I mean, we know actually from day to day uh, there's liquid, sorry, there's, there's ice on, on Mars, uh, there's ice in the caps on Mars, uh, there's also dry ice, on, uh, on, uh, so carbon dioxide ice, the atmosphere of Mars, it gets cold enough in the polar caps to, for that atmosphere to go down onto the surface and it also has water ice as well, so we've got those two ices playing. And do they still reckon together. that there's an underground ocean of liquid water on Mars? Yes, and then we also have a, an underground, um, uh, well, we don't know exactly how big it is, but uh, we, we can put estimates on how, how deep we'll have to go to get to that liquid water. This might be a silly question, but when you go to NASA, was there something in particular that drew you to working on Mars? Like, is there, could you have the option of being like, I want to do Neptune or 
I want to do Pluto. Like, you know, what <laughs> is is there something that drew you particularly to Mars, or was that just what was being worked on at the time? It, well, yeah. So that's that's the case for Mars. That's the what's the case for Mars. And Mars is it's next door to us, but it's also a a place where we as humans couldn't actually go there. Uh, and in the future, we could actually terraform the planet. Uh, and terraforming means to change it into something that we could live on um, in the future. Uh, and so that's the dream. And that's, that's what got me hooked was um, the question of whether we could do this, how, how much we can do in my lifetime. Uh, and also there's, there's also an amazing amount of stuff happening about Mars, particularly in, uh, in NASA, um, NASA circles, particularly to get these samples back from uh, during this uh, Mars sample return mission. We're going to have to spend a lot of time trying to understand why the conditions for liquid water on Mars uh, dried up and why those, those conditions changed and can we bring back that liquid water in the future? So can we do things like heat up those polar caps? Can we do things like expose the surface, expose the water which is currently underneath in the subsurface and heat it up and create lakes. How, how do we do that? How do we, how do we do that for real? And we've got Tony here from Melbourne. Tony, what's your question? Yeah, with, the, uh, with all these increases in, in disclosures about UFOs and, and the contentious science uh, that they might have come from Mars, is there any evidence uh, that there might have been an ancient sort of nuclear war uh, in soil? Is there any kind of nuclear remains in the soil? Wow. Yeah, great question, Tony. So the, <laughs> uh, essentially at the moment the answer is no. Um, uh, but if, uh, if we're looking for signs of a nuclear war, we would look for radiation potentially in the atmosphere. Um, that would be sticking around for a long, long time. Uh, and we haven't seen any evidence of that. And we haven't seen any evidence of destroyed cities or anything like that. And in fact, we haven't found any evidence of life on Mars yet. Uh, um, but that's well, it's also... It's all underground, right? Uh, if the we Mars, so, Mars life could have formed under, underground, potentially it could have gone on, or formed on the surface and then gone underground. Um, that's potentially one uh, life story of Martian yeah. life. There, there was a paper recently that said if life had formed on Mars... Back in the early days, the atmosphere would have had a lot of hydrogen, which is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. Now, Mars is at the outer limits of the Goldilocks zone, so it needs a powerful greenhouse gas to keep it warm. And what the paper said was maybe there were bacteria that evolved that then ate the hydrogen and squirted out methane, which is still a very powerful greenhouse gas, much more powerful than carbon dioxide, but not as powerful as hydrogen. And so they're saying in this hypothetical paper, which is very hypothetical, that if there were bacteria, they could well have killed the environment by putting out a weaker greenhouse gas and getting rid of the necessary heat. But this is all very hypothetical, and it completely ignores the fact that the core is solid, Therefore, there's no magnetic field. Therefore, the solar wind strips away the atmosphere. What is this school of thought that there was a nuclear war on Mars? Can you? T- wh- where does that come from? Uh, well, uh, I, I I don't have any uh, direct uh, 
information, certainly nothing that um, that we've found as as the Martian science community has indicated that there is any indications of uh, a nuclear events or anything like that. Ah, maybe Kevin on Facebook. <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't. Uh, we don't have any evidence for that situation. Um, and 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 to develop the capability to have nuclear uh, uh, bombs. That's something that we don't know how often that happens, uh, even after you've evolved life. Mm. Interesting. Emma in South Downey, what's your question? Hi, I'm just wondering, do solar panels work more efficiently in space than what they do on Earth, or would they degrade quicker being closer to the sun? Uh, yeah, that's another great question. So, yeah, Mars is actually further away from, um, from the sun than us. So we do use solar panels... Uh, as much as possible because it has a uh, they're a lot cheaper than having a nuclear power source uh, and also a lot less concerns about um, uh, interaction with uh, radiation sources on your rover for example and some of the instruments that we might have on board so those two things have to be married together um, but then um, solar panels unfortunately on Mars have a tendency to get covered by dust uh, and so that's what's happened to the to every one of our solar missions is it's die, they die from dust asphyxiation. There'd be opportunity and then spirit. Yep, that's right. And uh, and also something that's being asphy- asphyxiated at the moment is is the Ingenuity rover. Uh, Inge- uh, sorry, not Ingenuity. Well, Ingenuity has had that problem, but but uh, the Insight lander, the Insight lander has uh, has been able to uh, it's uh, been able to listen for impacts onto the surface and also it's got a seismometer on board so it's been looking for mars quakes and has found mars quakes but it only has solar panels uh, and they've been getting covered up by dust and it's been on its last legs for some months now although it was amazing with spirit and opportunity they came with a three-month warranty and how long did they last uh well it was 11 and 19 years Wow, 11 years yeah. and 19, 19 years. years. Yeah, That's pretty good for a three-month warranty. Big it up for NASA. Yeah. Wow. We've got Finn in the Mornington Peninsula. Finn, staying on Mars, what do you want to ask Adrian? Yeah, so I just wanted to know how hard would it be and how long would it take to terraform Mars? So I guess we could breathe in some Martian air, step on some Martian soil and survive without a spacesuit. Yeah, so that's... That's a great question. Thanks, Finn. The, the terraforming idea of, uh, of tra- transforming Mars in the future is um, something that I wanted uh, to get involved in and that's something that I've uh, definitely been focused on in my career. But unfortunately, it would take hundreds of thousands of years because what we're doing here is a chemical reaction in the atmosphere to change the atmosphere of Mars and that takes time. Uh, a little bit like the, the way that we're changing our atmosphere here on Earth, uh, it takes us uh, a little while to build up these CO2 in our atmosphere um, and it, it would be the same sort of process uh, on Mars. We, we need to boost up the atmosphere and create more global warming essentially on Mars. But yeah, the, a round figure is it's going to take us uh, hundred thousands of years uh, and the best way to probably do it is by getting Earth life microbes, in fact, would be the best thing to do. You say hundreds of thousands of years. That's hundreds of thousands of years, Mm. yeah. On the other hand, I do remember reading, maybe (laughs) it was an Isaac Asimov story, about getting water-based asteroids or 
water-based comets out of the asteroid belt and then landing them, just smashing them onto the surface of Mars and then just delivering hundreds of millions of tonnes in one go. But then my colleague, Professor Peter Tuttle at the University of Sydney, said, it's not that simple. You'd have some side effects. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, the uh, just the impact onto the surface is going to wipe out whatever it, whatever it hits. Wow. So, yeah, uh, if you're able to do that once uh, and avoid everything on the surface that you want to preserve, like your Martian cities or anything like that, then um, p- potentially you might put it into orbit around Mars, though. Potentially you might ah. get an international space station around Mars that would then collect that water and send it down to the atmosphere uh, in a much more safe fashion than an impact. Now, whenever we have a space-adjacent guest, we always get this question on the text line. Josh in Swanee Hill, what do you want to ask Adrian? Yeah, boys. Um, I just wanted to know, is there any chance of uh, extraterrestrial life form at all, aliens? Adrian, what do you think? Well, I personally think that there has got to be a great chance that uh, we have um, life elsewhere in the universe. Um, but the question really is that do we have life evolved here uh, on it? it uh, has life evolved twice in our own solar system? And that's the question that we can answer by going to Mars and trying to find on the most likely place that there's life or being life in the past, if Mars has evolved a separate life from what we have here on Earth, then we did, we have two chance we have two chances that we've taken here in our solar system that life and that would increase the likelihood that that life is everywhere around us and our universe is filled with life. Um, so we haven't answered that question yet because we don't know whether life. Uh, evolved on Mars. And every year the astrobiologists who specialise in this have a conference and at the end of the conference they have a raising of the hands. Everybody who reckons there's life somewhere in the universe, everybody puts up their hand. Everybody who reckons there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, half put up their hands. Me, I've read too much science fiction, I'll go with both. That actually leads in, Adrian, I was going to ask you, you know, obviously this is your life, this is what you do. When it comes to pop culture and content and you know, kicking back. Do you like science fiction and do you like watching that kind of content? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was what, what drove me, you know, things like The Next Generation, uh, Star, Star Trek, Star Wars, all those things that I'm now getting to, uh, the chance to pass on to my the next generation in my house, <laughs> which is uh, my six-year-old boy, and uh, try to do a uh, Introduce him slowly to Star Wars and Legos. And you got the Lego like Death Star or what? It's a classic. <laughs> oh, I wish I had that Lego <laughs> Death Star. Yeah. Yeah. No, at the moment it's like Lego City uh, <laughs> yeah. with, with a Mars Explorer on it as well. Oh. <laughs> We've got Laura here from Victoria. Now, Laura, you've got a question about the Rovers. You, you, you're pretty tuned in. What's going on? Hi, Doctors. Yeah, my kids and I love following the rovers um, and we're very excited to see what Percy finds. Uh, We'd love to know, we read that they play music to them to wake them up or for special events or things like that. We're wondering whether it's played out loud so potential Martians can hear it (laughs) or whether it's just played digitally to the rovers themselves or how does it happen? Right, so every... That's a great question. Thanks very much, Lucy. um, Every day they have uh, a shift uh, that 
we have at JPL and the, everybody calls into that shift. At the start of the shift, they always play a song to just kick everyone off and it, it's always like a Mars related, or a Rover related uh, uh, song that they uh, that they pick, they choose there, and then there are actually times when they've done things like uh, uh, cause uh, the oh, sing happy birthday to Curiosity, for example. They've done that before, so they uh, they would send up uh, some instructions for it to do some uh, stuff where it would send itself this little message of happy birthday on the on getting to ten years, for example, onto the surface, and um, yeah, Curiosity has uh, hopefully got a lot more birthdays to come as well. Wow, and and is that music just played internally for the Rovers or is it, you know, could there be people tuning in out in space? I say people, Martians, <laughs> other life? Uh, yeah, potentially if we had Martians that were like just next to the Rover, then they might be able to listen into something that the Rover was doing with itself on the happy birthday signals. Ah, so but, you'd be able to get some Australian music there, like the chats or... <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, some Triple J music should be what they are setting up, I'm sure. Exactly. And we want to make a little note here. You're a Triple J fan. You've taken it all the way to the US. That's Absolute, so great. Absolutely. Yeah, I love to listen to Triple J, the overnight guys especially, because they're what I'm listening to in the middle of the day over there in the US. Yeah. Listening on my app. It's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. You know, a lot of people don't like doing the mid-dawn shift or the late-night shift. It's a slog. But just, you know, you know, you could be having a NASA scientist in the US listening to you. So great. Well, thank you so much for flying the Triple J flag over there, Adrian. Yeah. We've got Hamish here. Hamish, what's your question? Uh, my question's about the water. You said before that we were picking it up. Uh, we are going to get it from Mars and bring it back. Why would we do that and would it have other elements in it that we may not know about, like kryptonite and stuff like that? Right. Yeah, so that's a great question too. So uh, basically we're at the moment we are um, picking out samples. We've got 43 samples that we can take and those will all be coming back to Earth or as many as we can collect. Uh, And and all of those will be housed in what we're calling the Mars Return sample holding facility that'll be a facility uh um, what they call a, a class five facility holding facility oh, in the like US. That super high level of virus containment mm-hmm. level yeah. five the top one right wow yeah. until everything is being checked for um potential contaminants that might contaminate our planet yeah we don't want to do any uh damage that's do no damage is our motto at nasa so we have a uh um a, Already uh, we've come up with a lot of plans. Uh, in particular, the European Space Agency has also been uh, um, doing a lot of agreements with NASA on um, where this uh, uh, facility will be because we want um, – NASA has uh, also that competing aim of making the data and all of the samples available to scientists – to investigate in their own laboratories. So that is a tricky game. We'll have to have the samples checked for safety, but then as soon as possible, we want to make them available to everybody in the world. We've got Riley here from the gong with one last question. Thanks, Hamish. Riley, what do you want to know? Hi, I just wanted to ask, because I'm a uni student um, and I'm studying environmental science now, and I've always had a really strong passion for space and everything. Um, I wanted to ask Adrian if there's anything that he, like any advice he would have to someone like me or people like me who are not quite anywhere near where he is now but want to be there eventually, anything that he did 
before his career started or in his career, that would be some good advice? Well, that's I can great. De- I think that's a lovely question. Sorry. Yeah, Adrian, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely recommend some, some books. Uh, in particular, there's a book called The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin, which is all about this uh, idea of the terraforming of Mars, looking at what Mars was like in the past, what Mars could be like in the future, uh, and what uh, humanity did his role in in Mars coming to life again could be. So that's that's a really great book. I'd recommend that to anybody. <laughs> and, and if you'd like to uh, get more information uh, as a PhD student or... Uh, you can email me as well. I'm quite happy to. <laughs> if you can find my email on the internet, then you can. I'm happy to answer questions as well from from students because uh, I started and I did all of my studies over here, and then I moved across uh, as a as a postdoc um, after I'd done my po- a PhD, uh, and um, it, it's a tricky to transition over to the United States. It is a different yeah. country, but it's uh, it's um, the challenges. Uh, uh, it has. It's exciting moments and it's challenges at the same at the same time. Oh, Adrian, given that sneaky link, we love it. Paying it forward and joining you on Science with Dr. Carl. Adrian, can you just give us a quick wrap? What's coming up for you in the next couple of months? What are you working on? What's on your to-do list? Yeah, so we have a very busy period um, in uh, November and December where, as I say, laying out this initial cache of samples. So... Essentially, what we'll be doing is taking images of the samples as we lay them down onto the the dirt, uh, and we've, uh, we're working on finding the flattest area on Mars or in the Mars environment that we can get to. And we've identified it now, uh, and uh, we're going to basically uh, drop the samples down onto the surface of Mars, and we're going to be taking an image of them to tr- document how they landed on the surface because then we want to know that we can actually pick it up in 15 years from now. So those initial samples will be laid down where I'm going to lay out those um, 11 samples in the next two months. But it's going to take a – essentially the documentation that we have to do for each of these samples is (laughs) very intense. This is something that you drilled out of the delta with a hollow drill and it's a – titanium cylinder roughly the size of an index finger and there's going to be 11 of these that some chopper is going to have to pick up in half a dozen years and bring back by 2035 or something. That's right, yeah. That's the, wow. that's the current schedule uh, is to get them back by 2035. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And if you like these guest episodes, take a scroll through the podcast feed. We were recently joined by Dr. David Wackenfeld, who is the Chief Scientist of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. We've got a couple more guests to join you before 2022 is out, so make sure you're subscribed and part of the Science with Dr. Carl fam. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill, and we'll catch you next week. Hey, it's Jess Perkins here, or Judge Jess Perkins, if you will. Join Hobber, Hing and myself for the Simply the Jest podcast, where we bring you Australia's most chaotic, embarrassing and hilarious stories on different topics. And to be honest, there's some pretty wild stuff. And I noticed a leech on my mate's chest. Uh, I look down and there's one right on the end of my um, my business. Rip that one off and just blood goes everywhere. There's new episodes each week, including extra stuff that we just could not put to air, a.k.a. the good Simply the Jest. Listen now on the Triple J app.